0: All right, the uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17 is a bit more challenging reading. It's a list of genealogies, the begots, as we could say, call them. Um, all All of these genealogies, these lists of names, are a testimony of God working in the lives of his people and in the lives of these people. And I think it's especially notable that... The last birth that's recorded in the Bible is the birth of Jesus Christ. All of the names prior to that, all of the births that are recorded prior to that, lead us to the one birth, that is Jesus, who is called Christ. I've chosen to read this in the New King James Version, it's uh, maybe just a little easier to read in that version, you can follow along as I read from the Matthew chapter 1. Verses 1 to 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadad begot Nashon. And Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time that they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerebabel. Zerebabel begot Abiad, Abiad begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor, Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliad, Eliad begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, who was born. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations, from David unto the captivity of Babylon are fourteen generations, and from the captivity captivity in Babylon until the the Christ. Are 14 generations. You may be seated.
1: ...to all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness... That is part of Paul's prayer for the Colossian church. And I think about that prayer today uh, for me, for you, for ourselves, that indeed that would be the case, that we continue to increase throughout 2020. And so I wish you a happy new year, a happy and a blessed new year. Throughout 2019, you have blessed us in so many ways, Wanda and I and our family, and I thank you for that again. All kinds of blessings and gestures of love. Um, We feel unworthy of that, but thank you from the bottom of our our hearts. God bless you for all of that. And then I thank you, Dave, for reading that uh, passage in Matthew 1 very well. It's a line, a list of men, and of the tribe of Judah. Uh, These were men in the kingly line, not just any line now, but this was the kingly line, the messianic line. And various of these men that are mentioned here are very prominent. Uh, They're princely, they're the royal blood. And we know about people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Asa and Hezekiah and Manasseh and people like that but there's others that were princes of the tribe like Nation in verse 4 was one of the leaders in the tribe of Judah and his son Salmon uh, we think that he was one of the two scouts that Joshua sent out uh, to spy out Jericho who ended up in Rahab's house and so on Forty-some generations, and as Dave said, they wondrously display Jesus' pedigree and certainly Jesus' perfect right to reign. And interspersed, surprisingly to us, and interspersed, interestingly, I think, are the names of five women, five ladies, This was in the day when pious Jews, you know, as many, or as some Jews still do today, would thank God every morning that, number one, they are a Jew and not a Gentile, number two, that they are free and not a slave, and number three, that they are a man and not a woman. It was a day, this culture, where women were often considered closer to property than actual human beings. Uh, more like property than equals and besides all that not all of these ladies really had their act together that well none of them were really popular or well known in their day some of them were just pretty sinful ladies none of them were well-known perhaps like in their day, like we think of Sarah and we think of Rebecca. And I remember how Andy Byler spoke about Abigail back in winter Bible school, I think last year, earlier this year. None of these were really prominent women, but let's think about them. Let's consider these five here today and noticing how they might be similar to us whether we are a man or a woman, uh, noticing uh, how that they were special in God's sight. Obviously, they are kind of special in God's sight or they wouldn't be mentioned here. How and why? Let's let's notice that and work on that together. Uh, the title that I've chosen uh, for this sermon is Special in God's Sight. And maybe... To think along these lines is especially fitting at this time of the year in the holiday season where people are joyful and there's a lot of mirth and maybe artificial happiness. Perhaps especially at the dawn of a new year, a dawn of a new decade, um, that we can be thinking about these ladies and how they could be like us could be like you, could be like me. Let's think of the first one. You know that that's Tamar, mentioned in verse 3. And I would call her the forgotten one. She shouldn't have been forgotten, Tamar. She was seriously wronged in her life. You can read that whole sordid story in Genesis 38. The custom of the day dictated that if she was widowed, that she would again be married uh, by a brother of the deceased. So the custom of the day dictated that she would be provided for in marriage. Not only that, but secondly, a promise of her father-in-law had indicated that she would be provided for in marriage. So she should have been provided for, She should have and could have been uh, provided for. But instead of that, it's pretty obvious that some blamed Tamar falsely for the deaths of her husbands. The first one was, the Bible says, was wicked. And something that the second one did was displeasing to God. It was their issue their fault, we would say, that they died young. It wasn't anything to do with Tamar. She was falsely accused. She was thought responsible. It wasn't that at all. So she should have been taken care of. Instead, she was forgotten. As the years rolled by, it became pretty obvious to her. It became painfully evident that she was uncared for that she was uncared for that she was uncared for she was uncared about in spite of that supposed double layer of protection and the worst thing perhaps about all this was that she wasn't accidentally uncared for she wasn't accidentally forgotten but it was intentional And convenient for her father in law, Judah, in this case. She was the forgotten one, intentionally so. Now, none of this, none of this excuses her actions. None of this excuses her actions, which were really quite terrible and sinful and pretty much as bad as it could get. That was her bid to be remembered and to be vindicated of false accusations, but she was wrong in that, terribly wrong. And I would just want to go on record again as saying very clearly and that none of the bad things that happened to her as she was forgotten over the years Gives her any excuse for the route that she took? Certainly not. But if you today, sitting here, if you can identify with Tamar as far as the forgotten part, if you can identify with Tamar as far as being falsely accused, and I think if you have lived very long at all, you ha- can identify with Tamor in those areas of being forgotten, of being falsely accused. If that's you today, I think that God would have you to remember two things. And I just offer these two things about, about forgotten people, whether that's you're a man or a woman. If you are have been wronged unintentionally. Or if you have been wronged intentionally. If you are forgotten. If you have been wronged. If you have been falsely blamed and accused. And I think, again, that that includes pretty much all of us here today. Number one, your Heavenly Father can and does remedy those kind of situations so much better than you yourself can. Our Heavenly Father can and does remedy those situations so much better than we possibly could or ever could. So if you're tempted to respond wrongly to the wrongs that people have done to you, being forgotten, being blamed wrongfully... God has some words for you, and I read the words of Romans 12, verses 19 through 21. If you are a Tamar today, listen carefully. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. That's Romans 12, verses 19 to 21. And also Hebrews 13, a couple of verses there. Let your conversation be without covetousness. And be content with such things as ye have, for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto thee. Did you get it there? God will not forget, he will never leave you or forsake you. God is not one of those who ever forgets. God is not one of those, certainly not. So if you're tempted to go Tamar's route because of being forgotten, remember, God can do it so much better than you ever could. And secondly, God will never forget you. So what was special in God's sight about Tamar in her forgotten state, in her sinful state? Well, I'm not sure how or why God made sure that she is listed and mentioned here in the begats of Matthew 1 leading up to the birth of Christ. She is part of the lineage of Christ. Makes me think that there was repentance on her part. Makes me think that she must have learned from that and become a godly woman. Don't know that. But I'm kind of looking forward Um, if heaven is at all If when we get to heaven, we have time to visit with people that we never knew, I'd kind of hope that Tamar is there. She is the forgotten one. Let's think then about the second one. And you notice her in verse 5. This is the foreign one. So Tamar is the forgotten one. Special in God's sight somehow. And you, if you are the forgotten one here today, God considers you special in his sight. Let's talk about Rahab just a little bit. She also had a bad start, had a poor start in life. In fact, it's been said that Rahab had three strikes against her. Three quick strikes. Number one, she was a Canaanite. Number two, she was a harlot. And number three, like we talked about before, she was a woman. She This foreigner who came in to live with the people of God, it was maybe a little bit easy for her to leave her own people and join the children of God. In... I say that thinking about the fact that she knew, obviously... Joshua 2, 11 through 13, she knew that her city was doomed and that everyone was going to be killed. So it was kind of easy for her in that way to switch allegiance from Satan to God. It was kind of easy for her to leave that doomed, pagan, sinful culture and go to, and live with the people of God. It was a little bit easy that way. There was just no attraction for staying in Jericho and dying with the rest. So here's this lady with three strikes against her. She has precious little light to guide her in the right way. Precious little. Uh, we could talk about the, how depraved and sinful the Canaanite culture was. She has precious little to guide her. She has only the disadvantages and none of the spiritual advantages but Rahab, the desperate foreigner, reached out in faith to the one true God and hung on with all her might. Um, I think that could be better said. Maybe we should say that Rahab, that desperate foreigner, grabbed the arms of the almighty God and hung on with all her might. Um, I kind of get that feeling as I read the words that she spoke. Joshua 2, verses 9 to 13, verse 21. She was a foreigner who desperately and quickly, when the chance was given her, joined the people of God. Now, you might feel like you are Rahab, That you're kind of a foreigner and that you don't quite fit in. It's possible that you feel that way or have felt that way or will feel that way. You could say things perhaps like, well, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. Or you might be able to say, well, I was raised in a Christian home, but it was a pretty dysfunctional one. Or you could say, well, I was raised in a Christian home, but it wasn't a very, not nearly as good a one as my friends and, and so on. Or you could say thinking about Rahab being a foreigner and you feeling like a foreigner and not quite fitting in, you could say things like, well, I don't have a background in church. Or you could say, I don't have the advantage of, I never had the advantage of a solid biblical church. Or you could even say that I didn't grow up in this church. None of which are really good excuses at all. None Of your foreigner disadvantages, need to keep you from living a faithful, godly, Christian life in his church as somebody who belongs and as somebody who can contribute to the work of God and his kingdom and his church. Maybe I should just say that once again so you get it. None of the disadvantages that you might have feeling like a foreigner needs to keep you from living a faithful, godly, Christian life in his church as somebody who belongs and as somebody who contributes, thank God. If you doubt that a little, well, just ask Rahab. You could look at Joshua six twenty-five, And that verse doesn't say much about Joshua, about Rahab, but it does say that she lived in Israel unto this day. And that make, make, leads me to believe that not only did she become, did she j- change allegiance and become a child of God, but that she continued in that in a faithful, godly way because that was written, Joshua 6, 25 years after it actually happened. I think maybe 30 or 40 years, not sure about that. So here she was, an older lady still living still contributing in the work of God's kingdom living with the people of God being a part and being able to contribute if you doubt that that none of your foreigner disadvantages needs to stop you from being able to live a godly Christian life you could ask Paul too because in Hebrews 11:33 he says um, by faith Rahab the harlot Perish not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. He goes out of his way in that setting to talk about her faith. The faith of the foreigner. And that faith can be for you too. James also is another person who talked about Rahab. And he said, likewise, was not Rahab the harlot? Justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? Just because you're a foreigner, just because you don't have the advantages and don't feel like you belong, none of that should should keep you from living a godly, faithful, Christian life before the Lord and in concert with the people of God. So we've talked about the forgotten one. We've talked about the foreign one, Tamar and Rahab. You will notice in verse 5 that it mentions a second lady, and this one is Ruth, the forsaking one. Tamar, the forgotten one. Rahab, the foreign one. Ruth is the forsaking one. Now, not forsaken, but forsaking. I think you understand she also similar to Rahab forsook her own people and all that she ever knew to identify with the people of God but and lots of what we just said about Rahab could just as accurately and rightly be said about Ruth but something that is different from Rahab and Ruth is that remember Rahab had no incentive to stay because they were doomed and she knew it But in the case of Ruth, there was quite a bit of an attraction back in Moab. If you doubt that, you could ask Orpah, who also started changing her allegiance. She began, but she didn't go all the way, and it was fairly obvious in the context there in Ruth 1 that it was because she thought back to what she had in Moab and wasn't willing to forsake all in favor of Christ. To forsake all, to be with the people of God, living for the living God. The interesting thing about the forsaking one who... Well, I just think that Ruth, one sixteen and seventeen, are so precious verses. You know them too. Let me just read them one more time, and think about all uh, that she, that Ruth, forsook, because she was looking for something better, because she was looking for something higher, because she was willing to endure the hardships. Because. She was looking at the long term. She was willing to forsake all that was earthly and all that was sinful in favor of God and his word. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die." and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. When she saw, when Naomi saw, that she was, that Ruth was, steadfastly minded to go with her, with Naomi, then she, Naomi, left speaking unto her, Ruth. She was willing to forsake all. And the interesting thing about this young Christian and I use that term in quotes, that this young Christian who was forsaking all for Christ was able to teach the older, supposedly more mature and wiser Christian. Look in Ruth 1, verse 20 and 21. In verse 20, Naomi, the older Christian, um. Exhibits blame. And in verse 21, she exhibits bitterness. It's there just really plain. Blame and bitterness. In effect, she was saying, Why have you been so mean to me? In Ruth 210, Ruth, the forsaking one, who is leaving the sinful and leaving the low, but hasn't gotten far in her Christian life yet, she says. Um, what well she said look it up there in Ruth 2 10 basically she's saying she exhibits humility and contentment and she basically is saying there why are, you, why are you being so nice to me the older Christian says why are you being so mean to me the younger says why are you being so nice to me that kind of thing happens yet today I'm, and I thank the Lord for that Let me just tell you the story once again about my son Lonnie at a church picnic a couple years ago um, across the way here at school. Uh, And I'll just mention that again, what happened. Um, It was time to go. We had had a good evening. It was time to go. Uh, Wanda was still talking. And I saw that Lonnie is off to the side with no with nobody really so I went over to him and talked a little bit and I said in a semi-snide way that that's women for you they always talk so long and it takes so long and those kind of things and he replied to his dad he said I can't remember the words but what he said rang very clear to me and in effect he said you know I asked Shannon a question once, and she said yes. A little later, I asked her another question, and she said yes. Shannon can talk all night if she wants. So yes, I thank God that sometimes the younger ones among us are able to help, hopefully, the older ones in maturity and in godly living and in godly thought patterns. And while we're talking about the forsaking one, do you do you remember ever having said anything like this? Do you remember? Um, do you remember ever agreeing and saying "I do" to a question that was posed by the bishop when he said, "And forsaking all others, keep yourself wholly unto her, only unto her, as long as you both shall live." I thought of that as I thought about Ruth, the forsaking one in a little different angle or a little different level, that's exactly what we have been called to husbands, to forsake all others and keep ourselves only unto her as long as we both shall live. God is calling us in our home and in our marriage to be like Ruth, a forsaking one. How are we doing? How are you doing? How am I doing in being a one-woman man Which is really what the New Testament calls for. The forgotten one. The foreign one. The forsaking one. How about the fallen one in verse 6? David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. All of these women, even the the next one are fallen ones but we notice this especially in Bathsheba's life that she was a fallen one you can read this whole story in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and when I say that I really think that it must what happened there that great sin that they were involved in I really think it was somewhere around 99.99% David's fault I kind of think it was about 99.99% David's problem and David's issue and David's sin. I think so. But as we think about the fallen one, Bathsheba, and her relationship with David, and I think of uh, I quickly think about David and his expression of repentance in Psalm 51 where he takes 100% of the blame. And I just like to think that after David penned his confession, maybe he confessed and repented um, against God, and God only have I sinned, he said there in Psalm 51. He also had sinned grievously against Bathsheba. Maybe David, after he confessed to God... He also confessed his wrong to Bathsheba. I like to think that something like that could have happened, and that Bathsheba, as a peacemaker, a peacemaker, you know, is one who shoulders more than his share of the blame. Maybe she shouldered more than her share of the blame. Why else would she be special in God's sight, special enough to be included in this list of the, of the lineage of the Messiah and the Savior? I'm not sure. But maybe at this point it would be a good time for us just to sing together Create in me a clean heart. Would, would you want to start that, Jordan? And why don't you stand uh, just for that? And we'll sing together, Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God And renew a right spirit Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and renew a right spirit within me. You may be seated. That's what David said. Oh, that that we, fallen ones as we are, would also say that from our hearts. Thank God that he forgives sexual sins. Thank God that he forgives all of our sins when we repent and confess, as 1 John 1, 8 through 10 says so clearly. And you might know this scripture, but let's read it and think about that once again. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we... If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The fallen one, which includes you and it includes me, thank God for forgiveness as we repent and confess. The emphasis, though, here should be on repentance, shouldn't it? Repentance means to change one's mind. It means a 180-degree turn. And I'm just guessing, you know, I'm not a counselor, and I'm not someone who thinks very deeply, but I just think that if one has problems with uh, sexual-type sins, or any sins, that maybe the biggest problem, the, the, the key part of the issue could be that he hasn't quite completely repented maybe he has just turned 178 or 179 or 179.9 degrees where repentance is at complete and total turning from wrong and sin and going directly into the face of our redeemer let's think now about the faithful one, verse 16, and like you know, that's Mary. We've thought about her some the last weeks, and to me it's interesting that she really has not much said about her in scripture, not really, for being the mother, the human mother of Jesus, and the status that that should give her. In fact, I kind of think that less of, her, less of the words that she uttered in her lifetime are recorded in Scripture than any of the other four that we just talked about, the forgotten one, the foreign one, the forsaking one, and the fallen one. I think maybe the faithful one has less words recorded that she spoke than any of the five. How was she faithful? How was Mary faithful? What do you see in scripture in the few passages that talk about her and highlight her? How was she faithful? What about Mary was faithful? Why? One thing that we notice, that I notice, was that she was faithful in believing God. When the angel Gabriel came to her, her reaction was one of fear and of doubt. But by the end of the encounter with the angel Gabriel, she said, what did she say? Let it be according to thy word. She was willing to believe God. She was faithful in believing God. And that contrasts so much in what had just happened a few months before when the angel Gabriel was summoned to earth to talk to Zechariah who was older and supposedly more mature than Mary. Zechariah was Mary's cousin's husband. And he was one of those, I feel quite sure, he was a priest. He was one of those who every day said, thank you God that I'm a man and not a woman. He prayed that. And yet here is this young woman who Spiritually, he is way ahead of the older man. Think about that. And as you think about that and all that that entails and what think also about how what do you think the angel Gabriel thought? That he would actually be dispatched by God Almighty to go down to earth and tell a man like Zachariah some good news about a sun coming and a Not just a son, but a special son. He's special in God's sight. And before he would leave, he would have to say, because you didn't believe God, you're going to have to be unable to talk for nine months. I think it was nine months. Mary was faithful in believing God. Whatever God said was all right with her. Reminds me of what I heard you singing not too long ago. You said that Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. You said, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. One way that Mary was faithful is that she had the simple, capacity to believe God another way that she was faithful that I noticed is that she loved God's word what makes me think that she knew about God's word that she read God's word that she studied God's word that she memorized God's word well in the after that angel Gabriel left she penned that hymn that we call it the Magnificat And in that Luke 1, 46 to 56, she quotes from memory there. Somebody has said 23 Old Testament passages. There's lots of allusions in in that psalm that she composed, in that poem, in, in that song that alludes back to the Old Testament. It was obvious that she knew the Old Testament. She knew the Bible. She was well familiar with it. I think she had been reading it and, or at least hearing it from the rabbis in the synagogue. She had been studying it. She had been memorizing it. But none of that necessarily brings one to or says that one is faithful. But Mary was faithful because she loved and obeyed God's word. Now I don't suppose that you can love and obey God's word without first reading it and studying it and memorizing it. But just because you read and study and memorize and and even, yes, read and study and memorize and think on it a lot, that doesn't mean that you love and obey God's word. But Mary was faithful not only in reading and studying and memorizing God's word, but also in loving it so much that she obeyed it. And I think of you young people that are thinking, are, are studying a lot in quizzing the, those portions this year and lots of years before now. I sure give you my affirmation in you doing that. And between you and the Lord, as you read and study and memorize that, become people who are more and more loving God's word as you obey God's word. No wonder it was easy for Mary to believe God because she loved and obeyed God's word. And God's word that is loved and God's word that is obeyed purifies. It brings one to faithfulness. And having said all that about Mary, I... Just quickly, we'll tell you that most scholars, Bible students that should know think that Mary was probably about 14 or 15 or 16 when the angel came to her. We've talked about the forgotten one and we've talked about the foreign one and the forsaken one. Also the fallen one and the faithful one. And maybe you find yourself, especially in one of those five. Or maybe you find yourself in all five of those five. These were special in God's sight. We don't know all the reasons why they were special in God's sight. We don't know all the reasons why God honored them by including them in the lineage of Christ here in Matthew 1. What about you when you find yourself as the forgotten one or in any of these other positions? Oh, that we all together here today and in the coming year, if the Lord tires and we live, that we especially become more and more like Mary, the faithful one. And I read again Colossians in closing of Colossians. 1, 10 and 11, my prayer for myself and my prayer for you, even as Paul prayed for the, Coloss- the church at Colossae, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long with thank, with joyfulness. Would you kneel with me for prayer?